Good evening, everyone. You are watching School Psych Podcast. I am Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland, and we're all super excited for this very important topic tonight. Um, I know that I, I was a sociology major back in undergrad, and so uh, in some of my courses, we had some of these conversations on microaggressions, and I always found it super enlightening and kind of just shifted my whole worldview on, on a lot of things, just hearing from other people on, on it. And so um, when I saw our presenters tonight um, who came to my county and, and did a presentation, it was great and it was really great to get back to that and to remember not to forget some of these things that are super important. So um, that's why I've been um, really excited tonight. Um, and it's funny, so that's kind of my intro, but um, I know Rebecca, she's like our wordsmith, so she was like, oh, you should say something like this. So I'm just going to read Rebecca's words right now because <laughs> her intro is way better than, than what I was going to say. So <laughs> an important aspect of what school psychologists do is to help schools create safe, positive school climates. Language matters and can have profound effects on individual sense of belonging, self-efficacy, and sense of identity. As a school psychologist, how much have you thought about microaggressions in the everyday language of schools, uh, classrooms, and conference rooms. So way better than mine. So, <laughs> um, But I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who is going to tell us about um, participation tonight. Rebecca? Hi, everybody. I'm so excited for this conversation as well. And if you're able to watch live tonight, we're so excited for you to be able to comment, share your thoughts, experiences, and ideas. If you're watching live, you can comment by logging into your YouTube account, your uh, Google account on YouTube, and you can comment right in the chat box next to the video. If you are um, listening through audio and happen to be able to um, also log into Facebook or Twitter, you can comment on either of the Facebook pages, School Psych, your school psychologist, or the School Psych podcast page. You can comment in messages privately or right on the page. We will be, I will be looking for notifications and also on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. And I also just want to say, um, I was um, not a sociology major, but a philosophy major in, in college. And then my first round of graduate school um, was philosophy and education. And I was at Teachers College when Dr. Sue um, was doing this wonderful work. And um, in the late 90s, just before maybe one of his most uh, famous publications. But I absolutely remember this conversation. And I remember being so grateful for the word because before that there wasn't a really good way to describe that moment when uh when you just felt not sure how to respond or not sure what just happened um so i'm really excited to get into it with our guests and we already have some quest participation what is a microaggression what is the definition we are going to get into all of that but first here's eric to introduce our uh, talk about our poll and introduce our wonderful guests okay um hello everybody i'm eric also a school psychologist in connecticut and I'm very excited uh, as well to talk about this because I think it's an incredibly important topic for all of us, um, uh, just as people, not only practitioners, but um, learning to be empathic and understanding how to support one another and, um, and deal with um, microaggressions. So um, uh, before we start, um, Rachel had a plug. Um, do you want to jump in with your plug, Rachel? 
Um, sure. I just wanted to mention that um, Dr. Malone, who's going to be speaking with us in just a second, as soon as we stop our rambling, is going to be at NASP. And she's got a mini skills session going on on Thursday, the 28th, from 10 to 11.15, with the location to be decided. So um, I'm definitely going to make uh, an attempt to get there. And I'm hoping to maybe see some podcast people there. So yay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> back to you. <laughs> um, so we have a, a short poll that I'll read. Uh, some of the survey questions about and then uh, introduce our guests. And so Rebecca uh, put a poll up on the Facebook page and uh, mentioned that an important aspect of being a school psychologist is helping to create or supporting a positive school climate. And as uh, Rachel also mentioned, uh, Rebecca's introduction that language matters and can have a profound effect on an individual sense of belonging, self-efficacy and sense of identity. Uh, so the poll basically asks, as school psychologists, uh, how much do we know about microaggressions? Do we feel like we need more um, professional development around this topic? Have we had personal experiences with microaggressions? Um, are there definitions that we can work with, uh, differences between perhaps intentional aggressions and unintentional aggressions? Um, are we comfortable with our understanding and how to support people in these areas? So um, our top question uh, voted for was that people have had personal experience with microaggressions. So um, obviously uh, it's an important topic uh, when anyone has um, experienced microaggressions, but um, that's telling that uh, 37 uh, people out of our poll, that was the highest number, um, responded that they've had personal experiences. Um, our second highest voted for question was that there may be an important difference between perhaps bigotry and unintentional microaggressions. So I think it might be important for us to talk about um, definitions. Um, 19 people uh, commented that they are comfortable in their understanding and then 11 uh, um, voted for that they would like professional development in this area. So um, a lot of, uh, there are also a lot of comments um, from people from personal experience as well as asking for definitions on that Facebook page. So um, I think this is really important and I'm excited to introduce our guests. So uh, our two doctors, Dr. Celeste Malone is an assistant professor and coordinator of the school psych, pro psych program at Howard University. She received her PhD from Temple University in Philadelphia. Prior to obtaining her doctorate, she received a master's in school counseling from Johns Hopkins. And her primary research interests relate to multicultural and diversity issues. And those are embedded in the training practice of school psychology. Um, overarching themes of her research are developing a multicultural competence through education and training, diversification of the profession, relationship between cultural competence, uh, competent practice and uh, pre-K through 12 student outcomes. Um, Dr. Malone serves on the National Association of School Psychologists Board of Directors as a strategic liaison and lead board member for the social, social justice strategic goal. Um, in this capacity, she works closely with NASP uh, boards and committees to develop and implement programs and activities to address social justice issues in school psychology and education. Uh, Dr. Sharifa Al-Ukta is an assistant professor and director of training in the APA accredited counseling psych program at Howard University. Um, her research focuses on promoting family wellness and reducing mental health disparities for African-American families by exploring uh, risk factors that negatively impact family wellness, interventions that may provoke, promote family wellness, training and activism, 
and uh, ways that families can cope to adjust to the risk factors that they experience. Uh, in addition, Dr. Al-Qutta also explores the diverse experiences of African-American Muslims. She's a licensed psychologist and maintains a private practice in Washington, D.C. And she's a managing editor for Psych Discourse, the newsletter and publication for the Association of Black Psychologists, and is a writer for APA's Division 17. Uh, Dr. Al-Ukta is also a wife and mother of four wonderful sons. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here. Thanks uh, for having us. Yeah. So I wonder um, if you want to tell us a little more about yourselves or should we get into defining microaggressions? Um, well, for me, I think telling a little bit about myself kind of dovetails into why microaggressions, what they are, and why I care to research them and study them. So I'm originally from New York City. I was born and raised in New York, but my family is originally from the Virgin Islands. So I'm a first generation American, and I grew up in a predominantly black part of New York, Harlem. And so throughout my life, I had been surrounded by communities of color, except for my educational experiences. And so when I started high school, which was in a predominantly white high school in New York, hearing comments about questioning if I should be there or when I got into my undergrad institution, oh, well, you got in because you're Black or this, and just little comments along the way. And so microaggressions have been very much a part of my lived experience, but I didn't have the words or language to understand or describe them until I went to, well, not even undergrad. It wasn't until my master's program in counseling where I learned about the term microaggressions and it gave voice to something that I had experienced over the years. And thinking about why I'm interested in microaggressions, some of it, yes, by my lived experience, but then also as a school psychology trainee and particularly during my internship, observing microaggressions occur on multiple levels. So from staff to um, the psychologist, the few people of color that were working at the site, from student to student and also from staff to student, that got me interested in exploring microaggressions um, from an academic perspective, not just thinking about my own experiences and more explicitly connecting that to school climate and how that may impact students of color. And so that led me on to explore, well, what? how much do we cover microaggressions in school psychology training? very little and thinking about how the connection between microaggressions and school climate that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done um, but this topic is important to me because not only because it's important for our profession but really thinking about my own experiences and i want to make sure that other students who look like me are be are able to be safe and supported in schools that's great Dr. Alka. And so I too, uh, of course, had lived experiences that I think brought me to this research trajectory. Um, being of an African-American woman, as well as a Muslim, um, during 9-11 occurred while I was in college. And I think mm -hmm. that that was, while I experienced um, microaggressions and racial overtones as growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, it wasn't really until 9-11 that I felt like this aspect of my identity that I wasn't um, fully aware of was being um, stereotyped and, and very vividly um, discriminated against. And so once I 
learned what microaggressions were and how um, it impacted people, I decided that I wanted to explore microaggressions first, actually, from the African-American Muslim standpoint. And as I fine-tuned my research objective in terms of families and wanting to help families um, improve their overall outcomes, families, school is a big component of where families work and where they engage. And so they spend a lot of time in environments and systems such as schools that we want them to be safe and we want them to promote the overall adjustment of not just the children, but for parents as well. And so that's how I sort of came into implicit bias and microaggressions within the school system. Wow. Thank you both. Uh, personal experience is, I'm sure, um, hard. <laughs> and uh, and I hope that our some of our audience will um, perhaps share a little bit as well. Um, Absolutely, and, and I uh, meant in my in our outline, I have been thinking about this so much and um, meant to share a little bit as well, just because it's, uh, I think, a good model for us all to be you know, vulnerable this way because our students are um, forced to be in communities where they're so vulnerable and, um, you know, so for us to share our experiences this way, and, and even though it's scary, I think is um, is a good exercise to give us empathy. Um, and so I, what I wanted to share is that in my parents immigrated to this country from India, and I'm a first generation American, but I grew up in a very um, small, um, mostly Caucasian town. And um, we were the only brown family in the whole town. <laughs> and I remember going to kindergarten and the kids um, saying to me, what are you? And it wasn't, it didn't feel mean, but I just did not understand the question. So it felt um, embarrassing almost. And so I remember coming home and, and saying to my dad, um, what does that mean? What what should I say when they when they say um, what are you? And my father um, mm. came here for college and and was such a patriot. He was the most patriotic, uh, eventually naturalized citizen that I have maybe ever known. And he, and he he felt sort of angry on my behalf. I could see that in retrospect when I was older. And he said, "You tell them that you're an American, and and you don't say anything else." <laughs> and so. That story is such a big part of um, how my public school education um, started and went from there. And so I, um, it really is so important to me to, to, to learn more about how do we help our students handle those moments? What can they say? What can we say? How can we um, help kids understand uh, that certain questions are might be hurtful, whether that was their intention or not. And so looking forward to getting into all of all of that with you both. Can we start off maybe with the kind of the academic definition or what definition are we working with for microaggressions? Sure, I think we could start with the academic definition and we could talk about it, how it looks like in real life. Awesome. And so, because uh, I know you had a question about that, so I wasn't sure if you wanted to provide the definition from Sue, or if you. Sure, um, let me just scroll back to my <laughs> definition here. So, um, uh, let's see, where are we? Um, 
Dr. Sue's definition in his, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not finding it in my outline, but I can find it um, in the poll, in the Facebook post. Okay, so he said that, uh, and this is Dr. Daryl Sue um, from Teachers College. He said that microaggressions are brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial, gender, sexual orientation, and religious slights and insults to the target person or group. And I think it's such a powerful definition um, because brief and every day. And what I would also add to it is how subtle they are, that I know that he's also used that word to describe microaggressions in some of his other work, but it just goes to show how common and regular it is, that it doesn't have to be something where it's a huge event or there's a lightning bolt being struck. Um, they were being struck by a lightning bolt, but something that's said in passing where you just stop and think like, wait a minute, did they just say what they said? Or, And the impact of it, it conveys that you don't belong here or that you're an outsider or there's something about you that doesn't necessarily fit into the general schema. And so thinking about the example that you just shared, Rebecca, about, well, where are you from? And the kids asking about you, the unintentional message behind it is that you don't belong here and that people like you don't belong here. And I recall receiving similar messages um, from other educational settings and hearing that said to kids as well. But I think it really does describe the experience. And another phrase that I've often heard used is death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, because they're so small, because it's so brief and the moments are so fleeting that you don't really notice it until you're feeling all of this hurt, pain, anger, a whole myriad of emotions that you didn't know that you were feeling, but it's because you've had all of these thousand small attacks on who you are. And as Sharifa pointed out, a part of yourself and part some aspect of your identity. And that's pretty challenging. Definitely. Um, do you think recently, um, I, um, in the Facebook post, uh, we've been having this conversation as we're warming up for tonight. Um, and also, um, in my own, um, personal reading, I just read the coddling of the American mind and in both conversations, there, um, was a position that, um, uh, Dr. Sue's use of the word unintentional, uh, was especially problematic. Um, and and the way I understand it from the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is that if I bump into somebody by accident, um, even if I hurt them, um, if it's by accident, I'm not guilty of an aggression, an act of, aggr of aggression. Whereas if I ram my shoulder into somebody on purpose, mm -hmm. it's a very different thing. Thing. And and so because of that that one word, we've now created this situation where where things are measured based only on how I feel. That if I feel hurt, therefore it's a, a microaggression. If I don't feel hurt, then maybe it's just rude or uh, uh, mean. So what do you think about that? And what would you say to uh, Lillian Field and? maybe the authors of coddling? Um, I think an aggressive act is an aggressive 
act whether the intent is there or not. And so like when you bump into somebody even accidentally, you could still you still hurt them and you're still apologizing for that. And so you did cause harm to them and you're acknowledging it. Um, in terms of the unintentional piece that speaks to the layer of implicit bias that exists, that while someone didn't intend to make that statement, there's some belief that they hold, whether they are cognizant of it or not, hence the implicit bias perspective versus explicit bias that led them to make that statement. And so the intent to me is irrelevant if you you hurt somebody by that. And the statement came from someplace. And so that's where I think the aggression plays out that we can't be so focused as much on this unintentional part, but there are some things that led someone to make that statement, um, internalized beliefs, prior experiences, that are show, that are um, demonstrating themselves in this microaggressive act. And I would just like to add that I think the the coddling that is going on in the American mind is the desire to remove guilt, right? Mm -hmm. Like I need to be absolved of guilt. I need to be absolved of these negative feelings. And even though the argument that they are using to support that absolution is by denying the victim or the person who experienced the hurt their right to their feeling right mm. so in order for me who steps on someone's foot not to feel bad i have to disavow and deny that your foot actually hurts. Mm. And that is the coddling. It is, it's not coddling to acknowledge that somebody's foot hurt. That, that the coddling is to say it didn't hurt so you can feel good even though you stepped on someone's foot. Mm -hmm. um, and, right. and that is what needs to happen. We, we, we want, we like to look at things oftentimes in just one direction, right? Um, but there's two, pieces to a microaggression, right? And there's two pieces regarding the thinking and the feeling. And that happens regarding the person who experienced it and the person who did the aggression. And so their thoughts and feelings that they didn't intend, that it wasn't as hurtful, can't matter more than the person who experienced it and their thought and feeling that it hurt and or that it may or may not have been intentional. Both of those things have to be allowed to coexist. Yeah, yeah. We we have a comment uh, from a viewer that says, "and and what if you apologize right after?" I, I think that the apology is important because it's acknowledgement, uh, an understanding of maybe oh, I said that uh, wrong thing, and and I recognize that that could have been hurtful. Um, and I just wanted to make sure too that everyone out there. We gave some examples of um, microaggressions, uh, like what are you, where are you from, um, especially, um, you know, if they don't accept uh, New York <laughs> for the answer, um, which was, was my situation. But also um, Dr. Sue's examples where he would be asked to give these um, you know, keynote speeches and, and even professors would say to him, wow, you're, your English is so good. You speak English so well. And he was born in, I think, Ohio, he said. So that's another example. Um, somebody also asked, does that include 
um, disability as a category two. And I think that it does. It, it could include any marginalized um, group that um, that these that these implicit biases are held against. And um, so, do you, do you all have other examples of, of the way microaggressions may play out in schools or students? Um, I think, and you may have, and I got, I dropped off a little bit because my battery had died, <laughs> but you may have provided this example, but thinking about the different experiences or expectations that teachers may have of students, if they come from a particular school or from a, a certain part of town and it's just like, wow, look at you, you're so successful, or you did well in this, or just constantly expressing little tones of surprise um, mm -hmm. when they respond to something correctly or if their parents show up for a conference because they're automatically assuming that parents from a certain demographic or neighborhood don't care about their their children's education and don't participate in schools so it's not even that has to be a long drawn out comment but mm -hmm. even just like the hmm, or okay <laughs> in response to things sends a message like oh you weren't expecting that from me and I also just want to layer in um, environmental microaggressions. I'm sure Celeste is going to talk about that a lot in her presentation in NAS mm -hmm. in two weeks. Uh -huh. But environmental microaggressions include um, going into spaces and not seeing diversity represented um, in pictures or on, on walls, having buildings named after people who may have had um, a bigoted, bigoted past. Um, those type of things can be environmental microaggressions that can occur at schools. Right, and along with that, and I was just thinking about this earlier from something else that I read, that a lot of schools and universities try to have diverse pictures of diverse students on their website mm -hmm. to show that they're this welcoming, inclusive environment, even to the point where some institutions got called out for photoshopping students into some of these pictures. And so on one side, we recognize that diversity matters and having and that imagery is important. So we wanna have diverse faces there, but then it's a harder time with the reversal, um, thinking about, well, what are these institute, who are these institutions named after? What type of artwork do you have there? People get more defensive in that aspect, but will readily go about using people of color for their websites to show that they're a welcoming inclusive environment but not thinking about the other side of the coin about what how their buildings are named and who's present when you go into the artwork or what books are represented in the library that it can send the message of exclusion as well and that's a harder piece for institutions to swallow wow. right down to the curricula um there's lots of examples of um, areas that where where bias is um, living well um, I wonder what you think about um, we had an, an example here um, that um, a school psychologist uh, female school psychologist uh, shares her idea with the team and the male school psychologist says the same thing and the team responds by listening and thinking it's a great mm -hmm. idea yeah, and gives him credit. Would that be another example? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a whole term for it, mansplaining. Mm -hmm. And thinking of the racial tone, white-splaining mm -hmm. comes along with that also, that attributions of intelligence. 
So it has, if were to be a good idea, there has to be a man co-signing on it. Or if it came from a person of color, then it has to be a white person signing on to it or thinking about ageist aspects as well. So this younger person on the team and then someone more senior has to kind of okay that comment. And then when they get called out on it, people automatic reaction is to get defensive, but that absolutely is a microaggressive act because what was it about her other than the gender difference between the speakers that would make one more credible than the other? And, and I just wanted to say that the viewer brings up an important issue that when we're talking about microaggressions, they occur on all mm -hmm. levels and across dynamics. So it's, it's not, it can be student to student, teacher to student, parent to parent, colleague to colleague, um, expect within the school system, that it can occur on multiple levels um, with, within the schools. What are your thoughts with, um, and I know you touched on this um, when I saw you guys present, but uh, um, I've had people say, well, I don't see color. Well, I'm totally, I'm totally, you know, I don't judge by that. That's not going into my thought process at all. I just don't see it. Well, how could that perspective or thought pattern be problematic? So you are going to erase a portion of who I am to make yourself feel comfortable and then expect me to praise you for erasing a portion of me because like you did this great deed. Color is real, gender is real. All of these dynamics are, whether it's a social construction or a visible aspect of our identity, people are treated differently because of the their outward racial ethnic appearance. So when you have terms such as passing and looking at, um, color as well, that there's different experiences based if you are visibly an ethnic minority versus not. There's also differences whether, you know, obvious gender. And so for somebody to say that they don't see color, that's simply, well, it's not true. They're lying to themselves in the process as well. They're, you know, they're lying to themselves to make themselves feel better. But color very much exists and I'm a black woman my life experience has been shaped by the fact that I'm a black woman. Had I been a white woman, people would treat me and interact with me differently. And I would guarantee that that same person who says that they don't see color isn't going around saying this to other white people either. And so it, it we can't deny individuals' aspects of their own identity to make make yourself feel better. It's not appropriate. It's not okay. And it's a, definitely an example of a microaggressive act. One of the things that um, I know we worry about in my, in my school um, is placing too much responsibility on what to do or how to handle it or what to say on the person who has been the um, target of a microaggression. Mm -hmm. So one of our viewer questions also is, you know, she, in the, res in the response to the male psychologist, um, she decided to, to point it out and, and call him out on it, um, which I think is, is wonderful if we are feeling, you know, ready to do that in the moment. But do you have any other suggestions or um, either of you perhaps a way that someone could, if somebody or to directly say to you, well, you know, I don't see color. What could the response be? Is it in the moment? Is there an intervention, some kind of thing that we should do as a school team beforehand in terms of like social emotional learning or 
um, a positive school climate intervention, what are some of the responses that you can think of that might be helpful? The immediate response is that it does differ based on the level of power and privilege that you hold. And so as you pointed out, it often falls on the one who experienced that microaggression to seek to dismantle it or call right. someone about it when there are, are other people there who are likely in greater positions of power. So thinking about the role of the adults in school buildings, school psychologists, teachers, and administrators, they hold more power and they have a responsibility to call those things out and not putting the burden and responsibility on the student to do so. And so looking at that lens, if you have power, you have a responsibility to wield that power appropriately to make safe spaces. Same thing with regards to privilege. And privilege is not a zero-sum game, that we have different aspects of our identity, and along with that comes differing levels or parts of privilege. And so for the areas in which you are privileged, exercising that privilege to make it a safer space for those who are feeling less privileged. And so in terms of what to say or do in the immediate, is like, oh, well, what will make you say that? Or tell me more about that, somewhat feigning ignorance um, to help the person draw out, well, what is it that you are, what is the underlying message here that you're not saying out loud and being able to get into that a little bit more. And it invites more of a conversation as opposed to putting somebody on the defensive as opposed to like, well, why'd you say that? Or getting, you know, or getting angry right away but digging into a little bit more of the messaging behind it. That's one of the immediate short-term pieces. It, for long-term and preventative work, looking at your school climate, looking at the if there are any particular students who are marginalized or they're disciplined, they have disproportionate discipline outcomes or educational outcomes or bullied um, for some aspect of their identity and making sure that you could address that through climate, having implicit bias trainings with the faculty, staff, and all of the adults that work in the school building. Because as we mentioned before, microaggressions with the unintentional aspect of it, that comes from implicit bias. And so we need to address the roots of the problem, certainly addressing microaggressions as they occur. And we need to address every single instance as it occurs Otherwise, we send the message that it's okay to talk about some things, but not others. But we also do need to get into the root of the problem. So that requires immediate responses, but then other long-term efforts. And so I just wanted to also um, interject and say that we definitely leave it up to the person who experienced the aggression to decide whether or not they want to lean in and say something at the time. We also encourage anyone to, to definitely step back, relax, take a breather, decide if they feel like the situation is worth it. Um, if they feel like a conversation may improve the situation um, to weigh out their options um, in the immediate response. In the long-term response, we also um, advocate for people who may feel marginalized or vulnerable within a certain space to look for advocates and to look for support systems and to be um, proactive in engaging those people um, in conversations as to what they can do systemically, collectively within that system. So to the viewer that um, said they were in a meeting with um, the male colleague and 
they were silenced. They, they felt voiceless. You can begin to have females in that work with you in that space. As soon as you say something, reiterate it and to second it and to give it validation prior to a male colleague coming in and jumping in on what you already said and promoted. And so that is also a way to work systemically and collectively within um, systems to bring about bring about some change as well. Right. And then um, to follow up on a really important point that Sharifa raised, that ultimately it's up to the person who experienced the microaggression to choose whether or not to respond. And even thinking other times that we've had, we've done this training, people are like, well, why wouldn't they respond? And so it could be an issue of power differentials that saying something in that moment and not having an ally navigate that conversation could actually make it worse, as well as thinking about the overall emotional impact. Like, is this a battle that I'm willing to fight? And it's okay for anyone to protect themselves because ultimately you can't serve anyone unless you are taken care of as well. And so you have to take care of your own emotional well-being. And if you believe that it may cause you greater harm and you are not in the emotional space to confront that microaggression, then you need to do what you need to do to take care of yourself. And so that may involve getting with other members of your trusted community and talking about the experience and debriefing it with people that you trust thinking about other ways that you can respond, planning systemic interventions and ways that you could address it broadly. Um, but yeah, you do have to protect yourself in that process. And along with other things that can occur, um, we have micro uh, microaggressions, but we also have micro validations and micro affirmations. Mm -hmm. And so these are everyday small messages that all adults and in individuals can send to each other showing belongingness, showing that they are valued within this community and within these spaces, even when there are other messages that dismisses them, I'm telling you that you are valued within this community, within this classroom, within this school. That's great. I love that. I'd love to learn yeah. about what those look like, sound like, feel like, and how we can maybe intentionally, um, you know, weave that into our culture for our classroom cultures um, for kids. Um, which also, it reminds me of, I, I think, I believe it's Dr. Sue who described different kinds of micro aggressions, micro injury, micro um, assaults, um, the most serious one, micro assaults. Um, Okay, so each of those three variations has an opposite positive? Yeah, though so I would say um, in terms of micro assaults, those are much more overt acts. And so it's easier to call out because it tends to be far more crystal clear than micro invalidations or micro insults that are so subtle. Um, so for all of these, I would say similar tones apply. It's just a matter of the level of intensity with which you apply that affirmation. And so when you are in an environment where there are micro assaults present, clearly there's a higher level of interventions and supports needed because people feel so comfort comfortable being overtly discriminatory. And so there's clear something more intensive and immediate needs to be done there. But if it's instances of micro invalidations, that also goes to the introspection piece because you're not you, learning how to listen, 
developing our empathy as profession as caring professionals and working to understand the perspective of others. And so that goes into understanding implicit bias, understanding ourselves as cultural beings so that we're aware of how culture has informed how we view the world. Because what often happens is that anyone from a majority group, because they never have to think about the status in which they are the majority, it just becomes normal, the status quo. And they don't think about how being in the majority shapes their experience of how they view the world. And so by, developing cultural awareness, which is part of a foundation of cultural competence, you know the stuff that's in your invisible knapsack and the lens with which you view the world. And once you have a better understanding of that, that is a stepping stone to understanding the cultural perspectives of others. And even just acknowledging that there are other perspectives out there that are different from yours yet are equally valid. I really like that um, response. Um, you know, I, I tend to probably like most school psychologists tend to try to be inclusive, uh, try to be supportive. But um, but you both said it really well that uh, when you're in a position of majority or a position of power, you're not always aware of what other people's needs are, how other people are being affected by bias and your own bias as well. Um, and so that gives, I think, some really clear, concrete ways, you know, to look for those things. So. Um, when I work in one of the buildings I'm in where there are very few people of color, um, we have a large uh, population of um, children from Spanish-speaking countries, and we have a small number of Spanish-speaking teachers as well. Um, so our staff does not look like our children um, in many instances, and I think uh, our responsibility is to look for ways to support them as well as look for ways to support the teachers of color in our building, the, the few number, you know, to make sure they fit in, to make sure they feel welcome, um, to make sure that culture is supportive and inclusive. Um, so it gives some, I think, some nice concrete ways to, you know, if somebody slights somebody or ignores somebody, I need to look for those things. Um, so that, that gives uh, some good concrete things to look for. Mm -hmm. And I, I see, I'm sorry, Celeste, but I see that Rebecca posted a question in mm -hmm. regards to um, this idea that the term aggression within the term microaggression might lead to an emphasis on victimhood, right? And so I think this goes back to what we originally started off with, this idea that the coddling occurs because people do not want to feel their own negative emotion of guilt, of feeling like they hurt someone, of thinking that they did something bad. No one wants that. And so we can't even talk about experiences that people experience and have gone through because we have to protect someone from not feeling that they are an aggressor or that they are a bad person. And we wouldn't do that in any other form of abuse, any other form of aggression. We as psychologists are trained to say that you have to acknowledge what hurt, what harm occurred to you and to make peace with it in a way that does not create you as a victim, but fully acknowledges what occurred and how and why it did. And so acknowledging what has happened to you doesn't make you a victim. Um, 
just like acknowledging that you stepped on someone's foot unintentionally or because of implicit bias or whatever reasons that it occurred doesn't necessarily make you a bad person or make you a racist or make you a bigot. It just means that we all have areas that we need to continue to grow in. And so in order for all of us to to do that, to grow, we have to acknowledge that sometimes I may hurt someone and that someone may have been hurt by what I've done. Such a good point. And uh, it makes me think of a viewer mentioned political correctness, which the the term just gets under my skin a little bit, because I think this is not about correctness. It is about empathy for other people and and um, the way they identify, not the way we see them necessarily. So um, I think that um, what, what worries me a little bit about the words is that um, is that it it makes some people it may make some people just afraid to say anything and I think that is the worst outcome that I, I should be able to say um, if I feel hurt or offended by something without the other person feeling like they can't talk to me at all um, and so do you have any thoughts about about that uh, there's so much um, polarization right now in our world and our political climate how can we how can we bring people together in this conversation a little bit more? So I think one of the critiques with regards to political correctness is that, well, everything isn't considered a microaggression, so I'm just not gonna say anything. And that doesn't, that certainly doesn't help the situation at all. If anything, when we're not having frank conversations about race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, privilege, power, we're only making our own implicit biases more entrenched because we're limiting the opportunities to learn about other groups. And so really the best ways that we could start to combat microaggressions and acts of implicit bias is to have these conversations and to encourage cultural exploration and having conversations. Recognizing and acknowledging that there are some things that you don't know, this is why you are asking the question and reaching out that I don't want to put words in your mouth or I don't, I want to be careful the way that I describe you or think about, I want to use the words that you would use to describe yourself. And so having these conversations and not going into it with assumptions so we can start to dismantle and confront the biases that we hold and that would hopefully lead to us being able to interact with each other with fewer microaggressions, or if they do occur, be in a place where we could confront them and have some conversation about them and acknowledge people's hurt and pain. I feel like if you're, if you're um, hesitant to, if you're worried that you're in the realm of, you know, is this, is what I'm about to say gonna be a microaggression? Could they take this wrong? I. I think it's good to remind yourselves that that discomfort of, oh, am I going to say something wrong that, that you're feeling? Um, the people that are on the receiving end of microaggressions on a regular basis, I mean, that it's got to be so much worse. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like it's hard to have that conversation as somebody who maybe is coming to terms with, I don't understand this totally, or I might be ignorant on this. And, and that's a difficult place to be, that discomfort but just to realize that that person on the other end, it's, <laughs> it's, it's gotta be worse. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, and, and can I say that I, I do think that it's okay not to talk. Mm 
right? Like it's if you think that what you're gonna say is offensive or it's gonna be disrespectful, it's okay for you to be quiet. Like <laughs> if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. Yes. And that doesn't mean that you shut off and and no longer listen mm-hmm. or no longer read and become more informed. That doesn't mean that. But if your dominant decision is that you just want to stay the same and everybody has to change, everybody has to be okay with who and what you are and you saying whatever it is you want to say, that is problematic. That is problematic because everyone has to be willing to change and grow for us to mend fences, for us to get on a better page in America. Right. And and we definitely have a long way to go. And we have to acknowledge that there's something that, that there's a whole lot that we don't know. And I definitely see that with regards to school psychology, that compared to some other aspects of professional practice, um, counseling psychology especially, we're way behind the curve in terms of learning about this and having these frank discussions. And it's especially disheartening that we're so far behind considering that we work in incredibly diverse settings, that no other Mm -hmm. segment of the US population is becoming more diversified than the school age population. That's where we're seeing the greatest growth with regards to diversity. We are in a profession that does not reflect that diversity by any means. Mm-hmm. And so it is that we have to step off of our pedestals and recognize that we have these multiple layers to go through, that we need to understand the cultural backgrounds of the kids with, with whom we're working. We need to understand schools as a cultural context and understand the role that they that educational systems have had in terms of institutionalizing bias as well and working to confront and dismantle all of those pieces. But we just have to, but broadly, it's recognizing the growth that we have to do as a profession. And so even just having this as a topic for your podcast Mm -hmm. is a huge first step because it's very little addressed in school psychology or even just thinking about microaggressions research on school-age kids. I'm working with a couple of my grad students on a systematic review, and out of thousands of articles about microaggressions, only a small handful have school samples in them. And for those that have school samples, none of them are in school psychology journals. And so this is a huge gap in terms of our professional knowledge. And we really do need to take this critical eye and understand that culture impacts all of these experiences, that school psychology has a culture, our schools have a culture, our kids and communities have a culture, and by we need to understand how these cultures intersect with each other and to better understand the experiences that students have within schools. If we say that we care about students, then we need to, this is the type of work that we need to be doing. And can I add, just, just because it's Black History Month also, <laughs> that- that we also have to be very honest that schools perpetuated a lot of racism and still remains Mm. one of the more publicly divided, diverse categories within our society, that you will see school boundaries, as we talked about polymandering in terms of politics, that gerrymandering in terms of political lines and voting um, ballots, you still see that in school systems 
today to create um, schools that aren't integrated, that aren't diverse, that, that schools, they say schools remain as segregated as they did prior mm -hmm. to Brown versus Board of Education. And that doesn't happen by accident. And it doesn't happen by all of these great people not seeing color. Like, mm -hmm. so we, we have to be very honest with ourselves about that as well. Yeah. That's and we definitely go further. I mean, it uh -huh. we definitely go further down this road because I yeah. also think about the history of our profession. So acknowledging some huge parts that within school systems, within the profession of psychology writ large and within school mm -hmm. psychology, the role that we played in terms of institutionalizing all these different forms of bias and oppression. But at the same time, we're able, now that we are becoming more cognizant of that, we now have the responsibility to work to correct and dismantle it. And so thinking about, you know, NAS now with the strategic goal of social justice, that is a positive step forward in recognizing the work that we need to do and that we need to be active, that to dismantle um, these power structures. And when we look at disproportionate discipline, as well as disproportionality in special education, that we need to be active. It doesn't happen passively, mm -hmm. these things will go away, but we do have a responsibility to be on the forefront in terms of making the change that we wanna see occur. And part of it is having conversations just like this and understanding the role that one small part of that systemic bias microaggressions plays in that, but continuing these conversations and looking at culture more fully within school psychology training, our professional development, and how and informing how we work with others and communities. Mm. That's, That's great. <laughs> I, I'm aware that we're at the end of, uh, of our time. I just have one last question, if you don't mind. I, I love the phrase that you used, um, that I want to use the words you would use to describe yourself when, when I describe you. And I wonder for children who, you know, are not so firm all the time in their sense of identity, especially if they are um, maybe not in a diverse uh, school system, how, how can we um, give them tools to talk about themselves in a positive way? How can we teach them uh, about some of these concepts without without having them feel uh, victimized or having them feel um, like they're having to, you know, read people's minds or what can we do in just a simple way when we're working with, I guess it's not so simple, but when we're working with um, children around these topics. My first immediate thought um, was getting names right. There was this interesting study mm. at kindergarten students and teachers were butchering their names and they didn't feel in the correction, in the position in which they could correct their teachers. And so even having a conversation with a child about like, well, tell me, how do you say your name or what would you like to be called is quite meaningful. Um, and so that we're not just ascribing some label to them or just saying that like, oh, well, this is close enough when this is a very much a meaningful part of their identity. So that's one small thing I think of. But I really also think of those broader environmental microaggressions and what do you have within your classrooms and in your school spaces that reflect that all kids of shade, shades of color, um, gender, gender identity, belong, religion, religious background, belong in, within these spaces. And so by seeing themselves reflected 
in the books that you have in your classroom, the content that you're teaching, they're part of the community as opposed to an other. And it sends the message broadly to all of the kids in the class that we respect and value diversity in all of its forms, just by having conversations about diversity, talking about like, well, here's some ways that you're different, here's some ways that you're the same, and pointing these things out and having a array of positive images along with constantly conveying microaffirmations and saying, mm -hmm. I value I value your input, I value your perspective. This is different from how I've seen it, but I really liked how you talked about your traditions and valuing what other people bring to the table. And I just wanna add, cause that was excellent. <laughs> it also includes diversifying your network. So you can begin to ask questions with, the, your colleagues regarding these issues. So you, everybody says they have one black friend. So ask that one black friend, ask your diverse network about how to address these topics and ensure that you're bringing about um, an inclusive curriculum and inclusive school community. For sure. Such, such an important topic. Yeah. For sure. And, um, you know, maybe we can rope you guys into a part two at some point because I know we've had a lot of questions and there's just so much to cover. Um, and if these folks are coming to convention, the mini skill session that yes. I'm doing is about addressing microaggressions. So please come out on Thursday morning. Yeah, and yeah. I hear they have a new app that you can download yes. to schedule <laughs> um, your conference presentation. So download the NASP app too. Yes, that's sure. wonderful. And sure. can I add to that? Um, since since we're plugging about the same topic, um, I'm speaking at the Connecticut um, State Education Research uh, uh, Dismantling Systemic Racism, the Governor's uh, Conference this year in April on um, multicultural assessment and um, comprehensive assessment to reduce. Um, uh, inappropriate and over-identification of children of color in special education. So um, so if you're in Connecticut, please come out to that. That's April 26th in Hartford. Awesome, very cool. Um, all right, well, thank you everybody. Thank you to our guests for, for yes. taking the time. Thank you so much. And we so appreciate it. And yes, NASP, um, Rebecca and Eric and I are all gonna be at NASP. So um, beware, we might be posting a lot and videoing and who knows what else. We're thinking maybe a live podcast kind of in the lobby or something, depending on Wi-Fi situation. So um, we might just pop up and <laughs> just be doing our thing. I'm definitely gonna be trying to get a million pens. That's always my goal. <laughs> convention with enough pens that I feel like the fee that I've paid to attend the conference has been paid for <laughs> in currency. So <laughs> we'll be doing that. And um, yeah, download the app because there seems to be some social networking functioning where you can go into a session and maybe like have a conversation there with other people also attending the session. So we're like, yay. Um, and I'm thinking too, we might be posting um, where we're gonna be at. So if anybody um, wants to like wave us down and say hi, we would love to talk about anything school psychology. So. Yes, and one last suggestion, please like us on iTunes so that more people can find us. We've been um, so lucky to have amazing guests like our guests tonight, and mm -hmm. we just want to get the word out there, too, because we learned so much from our guests. So if you like us on iTunes, that 
gives us more prominence in the search feed and subscribe on YouTube if you prefer to see um, see our faces and uh, also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you so much, everybody. All right. Night, everybody. All right. Thank Bye. you. Bye.